turned to some dangerous territory. <clears throat> you know, our signs of the times, perhaps probably the most controversial of them, and yet we all are well aware of it in Scripture, and we talk about it. Um, not always informedly, not always knowing what we're talking about. There's a lot of milieu around it that we pick up even from Hollywood. And that's always dangerous. When Hollywood starts to be the driver of the content of what we know about something out of God's Word, we're in deep trouble. And so we come to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we have a declaration by Paul to the Thessalonians who were concerned that they had missed the rapture. They had missed the coming of the Lord. And rather than go into a lot of um, conjecture, Paul simply says, uh, you shouldn't be deceived because there's two things that have not yet occurred. And if those two things have not occurred, then you did not miss the coming of the Lord. We can imply then that these two things, when they do come, are going to become um, within the context of the coming of the Lord. That is that um, when they come, we can start to wonder, did I miss it? Um, these things have to come first, it says in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. We have looked at that when we looked at the uh, apostasy and we saw this falling away, that it has occurred over uh, more than a generation, that uh, we have gotten into a time period where Christianity, by and large, is no longer represented by authoritative uh, truth of God's Word, but rather by the uh, insights and desires of men. We looked at that part of this verse, that this apostasy has to come first. My contention is that that had to happen between 70 and 100 years before Christ's coming based upon the pattern that God has in his uh, exercise of his wrath in the Old Testament where he gives um, his people and he gives the world both this opportunity for 80 to 100 years um, with one exception, and that exception is very important in our study tonight and next week over this topic. Um, the second part of this verse <clears throat> is also of importance because uh, not only do we have a falling away that's supposed to come first, and we looked at how it, how it falls out, um, what is the process, that we are well down the way in that process, but the second thing, and I believe this is chronologically given to us, um, these two things. So first we have a falling away. Then the man of sin is going to be revealed. This is a very important statement that uh, we need to be attentive to. Um, we have gotten into a time period, and it's not surprising because of some historical patterns of among preachers and, and movements, uh, that aren't just uh, mainstream Christianity problems, but in the cults there's problems with this too, um, and that is prediction models. And because others have been out there predicting things that they aren't supposed to be predicting, um, we in, in conservative circles have gotten to the point where we're afraid to do any statement of authoritative biblical identification. And we saw that when we studied the nations, we looked at them, and it's time that we were ready to put our finger right on it and say, this today is what that was talking about in the Bible. This is that. Remember, we talked about that with Israel too. That this is what that was saying. And we are seeing it today. We saw it with Israel. We see it with the nations. That passage after passage after passage is done. It's finished. It's completed. We are not waiting on any of it. And so we come to this statement about the man of sin being revealed. And I find that uh, like in many other areas today, um, mainstream and conservative and fundamentalists 
are taking a real hands-off approach and they're very afraid to say, this is that. Or he is him. And it's unfortunate because God's Word says that that is one of the two things we're supposed to be looking for is the falling away, which we have identified, and the man of sin being revealed. That if we are in a time frame very close to His coming, it should be evident, not strained and not guesswork, but evident who the man of sin is. That once He is revealed and exposed for who He is, and again, the evidence here is that there is some mystery here that needs uncovering. Um, and that's going to be key when we look at the template that the Bible has for us um, of looking for him. But when he is revealed, when he is shown to be who God says he is, then Christ's coming. Then we can be anticipatory of it. And the Thessalonians were told, don't be worried about it. It's not been passed, it isn't really on the soon horizon because none of these things are really evident at all. And so these are the things we are to be looking for. And over the course of the history of the church, um, we can see ebbs and, and uh, surges of, of uh, spirituality. Um, but even in the midst of all that, uh, even false doctrine, of course, we know there are antichrists. Even back in 1 John, John identifies little antichrists, false teachers that, are being, that will be prolific throughout the church age. Um, but this is someone very specific, very uh, much identified in Scripture, particularly in one book of the Bible. And so here we have this instruction, I believe, that we should be observant for a falling away from the faith. For this apostasy. And we should be observant for the man of sin. Where is he? And previous generations, I want to share with you, were willing to engage in this kind of work. They were willing to look around and say, who, who in, in our world would fit this? The problem that they got into was that they didn't have a lot of the other eschatology in place, so they couldn't identify themselves really as the last generation on earth because so many other that's couldn't be identified with this. There was nothing in their day that correlated with the specific prophecies that we've already studied. And so they were kind of just shooting in the dark, but they knew this passage was there. And they knew that they were supposed to be looking for him, that there, were, there was a means of identifying him and it was easy for some to lay hold of that and to abuse it. And I believe the ones that abused it had political motives. And we often talk about, uh, well, the church wrongly identified Hitler, wrongly identified Henry Kissinger. I remember that period of time. Uh, and we look at where that came from. And I try to find the authors, whoever said those things. And you'll be hard-pressed to come across them. Um, because I believe that a lot of those were out of rumor mills and, and, uh, and really was generated by people who had a political, a geopolitical agenda. Um, but we find that uh, there was another problem. And the other problem was they had too many passages that they were relying upon to identify the man of sin. Why? Because they took some passages, both in Revelation and Daniel, and thought that they applied to a man rather than a nation. And so they were applying Revelation 13, they were applying the little horn passage of Daniel 7, and they were looking for a man to fit those descriptions. And of course, we've done our study on the signs of the nations, and we see that rather than describing a person, they're describing a country, an empire, uh, or the empire of empires. And so... Um, they were misapplying certain passages of Scripture, and that got them into trouble. And so again and again, we had some hurdles that really I don't see in my way anymore. We are well beyond them if we have handled Scripture well, and we see, look around and we see that this is that model over and over again that we see um, these things already fulfilled. Now we can cross that off, and we recognize immediately that doesn't really refer to the man of sin at all. So we have narrowed down our passages of Scripture to just a handful. We have uh, 
strained out a lot of stuff that from our historical uh, predictions that were made really because we just wanted the Lord to come. And I don't fault them for that. I kind of have that same desire. Um, and if there's any generation of Christians who don't want the Lord to come, well, shame on them. I, I've never met them, but um, the ones that know God's Word are looking for that blessed hope. It is what we are looking forward to. So, what we have before us is this passage in the next verse, um, which describes him, uh, the son of perdition, the one who will be destroyed by Satan, who will oppose Christ, uh, it's not destroyed by Satan, destroyed by Christ, who will oppose Christ. And whether you want to call this man the Antichrist, and I try to avoid that term because it has been so filled with weird ideas by the world and sometimes by the church. I avoid it. This is the term I prefer to use, the man of sin. The son of perdition. That this is that one individual, different than the nation, that we are to be looking for and that the Bible says will be known, will be revealed. If you're looking, it will be revealed to you. Um, and, and this is not just a poke in the dark. It will be plainly evident to those that are really looking and are willing to examine it. So, Let's talk about the milieu of Antichrist and why I don't want to use that just very quickly. Um, we have this idea and conjured up again, we're to blame as much as the world in Hollywood is to blame. We've conjured up this idea of this global leader coming out of Europe who um, uh, had a deadly wound and was healed, who then creates a image that comes to life of himself and and uh, a false prophet beside him, um, all built out of Revelation 13's misuse. Um, we have him as the, as the new Christ, um, uh, and rather than the opposed to Christ. So we have him as a political and religious leader, even though we have many other passages that call for him to be irreligious and really leading the world in... Um, a strange worship, a worship that is uh, of his ideals, and we're going to look at those here tonight to some degree, uh, and a, a worship that is strange to the world. It's not going to be focused on deity like we understand deity or, or like other false religions. Um, that's wrapped up in the person of the harlot, and we are going to spend a little bit of time on that sign as well, but there's not a lot of sign there because we do want to look at the history of her, um, of false religion. And so we've set him up, and there's been rumor, and, and I remember being taught, oh, he's going to be of Jewish origin for some reason. I, don't, I never really understood why he had to be of Jewish origin. That's why everyone was picking on Henry Kissinger, um, was you know his Jewish roots. Um, I don't find that anywhere in the Bible at all. I don't know where it ever came from. Um, and if you know where they came up with that idea, you let me know. Um, I think it's just derived from the idea that he is the false Messiah. And if Israel's going to follow him, then he must be of Jewish origin. Um, but that's not ever really described in Scripture. If you think that Israel isn't willing to follow after non Jews, you haven't noticed their history. Because they have been willing to do that even back in the Old Testament. So let's look at what the Bible really says. Let's catalog who this man is. Not in terms of pointing the finger and say, that's the guy yet. We're not going to do that until next week. But let's look at what are we looking for. And so we find uh, the son of perdition in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4. Um, verse 4 says, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. Or that is worshipped. Now, that is not a religious leader. That is an irreligious leader. His religion, if you will, is to oppose all that is called godly. To oppose all of that. All that is called God or that is worshipped. He is drawing men away from any kind of worship. And so we find right away that he sets himself up in opposition against all religion as an, an evil that's upon mankind. 
And uh, we're going to see the outworking of that next week a little bit more. Uh, well, probably in two weeks. And so we have him setting himself in opposition to really to all religion. And really he exalts himself. So these are two character qualities. He is a man who, has, who is uh, opposing anything that's worshipped by other men. Everything that's called God by other men, including Christianity, he opposes it. He, he works in opposition to it. He stands in its way. And he wants to deter people from engaging in this kind of worship. And rather, he exalts himself against that. In other words, um, you don't need to trust in that God. You don't need to go worshiping over there. I, me and mine, me and my minions, will be able to meet all of your needs. We will take care of these issues of a global nature, um, even some that may seem to be only belong to the realm of God, he's going to claim authority there as well. I'm the one that uh, you need to look to to deliver you from these things. Um, and he's drawing people away from all religious worship. So he's not, in a technical sense, a religious leader, although he really is because he's telling you to follow him and not pay such strong service to your God. You might say, well, how in the world can that be when we see Muslims out there willing to blow themselves up for Allah and we see this fanaticism that seems like polarizing on, on many religious fronts? Um, but again, if you look at the trend, what are we doing with those fanatics? What are we calling those fanatics today globally? Come on, what's the T word? Terrorists. Okay, and so when we look at what is our government viewing people like me, people who believe in the literal God's word fanatically. And yes, I am fanatically that way. That God's word is my authority for life and practice. And, and I don't care who gets mad at me. I'm going to follow it. And I don't care what my government or my family or my friends say. It is true, period. Well, from a societal standpoint, that kind of position is viewed as terroristic. And so I'm viewed by my government as a terrorist. That's on, that they've, they put that on their directory of terrorist groups and individuals. And I qualify under the number one guideline. So Homeland Security can mark me down. I'm one of the guys. And so we have taken the religious fanatics and we call them terrorists. You and I have no problems calling Muslims fanatics terrorists, right? You swallow that hook, line, and sinker. But when I say I'm one of those by our government standards, you go, what? Yes, the same standards by which you are condemning followers of Islam fanatics um, condemns you as a follower of Christianity fanatically. Fanaticism is the problem, and we are seeking to marginalize them. We identify them, and, and same thing with fanatical Buddhists. Um, this is going on in many parts of Asia, that they are going after these. And anyone that is fanatically religious in any religion is being attacked today globally. This man is going to lead that. He's going to oppose all of these these true worshipers of anything is called God and exalt himself in the midst of that, that he is above all of that. Ultimately, that full revelation is that he will sit as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. He will finally, in the end, get to the point of requiring worship of himself in the temple in Jerusalem. And so here's that evidence. And many people say, well, Pastor, we're not going to be around to see that, are we? I don't think so. But uh, I think we should be able to see the movement towards that. We should certainly see it well on the horizon. And I think we could even conceive of it, of the man that we identify. But this is where his opposition to religion will lead. Eventually, there's only one practice that will be accepted, and that is to worship him. And it's not just in the Hebrew tabernacle um, or temple, but it's by all 
by all um, religions. And uh, again, uh, most religions wouldn't really have a huge issue with this. Hinduism, for example, are, they're more than happy to add the man of sin in, right? Just add him in as, I mean, you already got a billion gods, what's one more? Right? And so it's really monotheists that he's going to have a problem with. Um, and again, those that are really fanatical about it, who really want to stick to their guns, and specifically they say that, that hold to biblical prophecy as literal. And so we are of that kind. But the first thing we find about him here in Second Thessalonians, first of all, he is the man of sin. And we'll build that up a little bit more. Um, literally, he's the lawless one. And we're going to find that in Daniel extensively. He's going to oppose all that is called God. He's going to be the irreligious one. And we're going to look at that a little bit more in Daniel. And he's going to exalt himself. And those three descriptions in this passage are really the three categories that all the other descriptions in Scripture fall under one of those three. The his irreligiousness, his self-exaltation, and his sin. So let's look at the passages. We have three. I've narrowed it down to three other passages in Daniel that we're going to look at. Um, and when we do so, we have to understand something about prophecy again. Um, sometimes we will have specific information that says this is only about this person in the very end times, and um, it doesn't apply to anyone else. We have one such passage, maybe two. Other times, it'll be talking about a person, historical figure, who doesn't really fit the full description as a type of a future person who will fulfill it to its entirety. Okay, And this is very common in, in prophecy, is to use types. Typology all through Scripture is very common. Um, we see it in the tabernacle, the positive types, where we have the lamb representing Christ. We have all these things. We, in our study of the tabernacle, we went through all the typology that's there, of the bread of life, of, of, the, of the shedding of blood, all these things that bespeak of Christ. They are types. So types can be people. It can be events, like Passover. It can be um, uh, things, like the lamb or the candles. Candle uh, sticks there, the candelabra uh, there in the in the temple or tabernacle, and so any of those can be represent of some future antitype. The antitype, that is that future fulfillment, is always greater than the type. And so we have at least one of those in Daniel where we have an individual identified, but we see that he didn't really fulfill every part of that, um, not nearly. And so then he becomes a picture, a type of someone to come who is going to complete that description in its entirety. Okay? So keep those in mind. And let's go to Daniel. Let's start in chapter 8. We'll do them chronologically through Daniel. 8, 9, 11 are the three chapters we're going to look at. <clears throat> Again, I've ruled out chapter 7 because the little horn does not refer to a man but to a nation. So we're not including that in our study of the man of sin. So let's go ahead and look at chapter 8. And one of the things that's nice in my Bible is that uh, they change the format when they get into a passage that's talking about someone in the future. That's a deliberate break from the previous description. They move from simply a, a standard format into a prose. And we're going to see that here in Daniel chapter 8. And so we have really a description of a very limited time frame. Daniel has seen a vision of a ram and followed by a goat. A goat with one single great horn that is broken off and four little horns grow out of it. And Daniel's given a description really of a very limited time frame, prophetically anyway, and that is, from the time of the media Persians through the Greeks. He's given that description. But tacked on to the very end of that vision is some very disturbing 
information that, that Daniel's given. And um, we find it in uh, verse 9 of chapter 8. Um, Out of one of them, that is one of these four horns, came a little horn, and this is a different little horn than in chapter 7, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land. It grew up to the host of heaven. It cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. And um, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of the sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, there's that sin part, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifice and he cast truth down to the ground he did all this and prospered. And that's going to be another phrase that you're going to find regularly. Um, and then I heard a holy one speaking and saying how long, and they identify that as a certain number of days. And so it's definitely attached to the Greek empire. But the language and the imagery here has become much more vivid and, and more specific, and there's a lot of detail here all of a sudden in this vision. And so something has radically changed and we can identify the person who violated the temple in the Greek period. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, and that word Epiphanes is I am God. I've, I've risen to that standard. Who did set himself up in the temple, um, but he didn't fulfill everything described here. He certainly didn't take on the prince of princes, Jesus Christ. He didn't oppose Jesus personally. Um, and so... We, we find him as a type. The Antiochus Epiphanes becomes a type of a future individual. And that's going to be borne out in the interpretation given to Daniel. So, so far we just read what Daniel saw. He saw all this, doesn't understand it. In comes Gabriel. Gabriel says, I've been sent to explain it to you. He explains about the Greek empire and about the one horn that's the, the prominent one, which is the first king. And that we know who that is, right? Alexander the Great. And so we know the prominent horn is broken off right in the peak of its power, replaced by four horns. We know who they are, right? The four generals. So we have a great picture here. And then all of a sudden we have this break in verse 23. It says, And in the latter time of their kingdom... When the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. He shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. And the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision for it refers to many days in the future. And of course, Daniel thinks. Um, you see the change in the language. Here is just what happens, what happens, what happens, what happens. Um, and then also we have this very specific, very detailed, very different kind of language entirely. And we have it describing this individual extensively. And of course, Antiochus Epiphanes did come up in the latter time of the Greek Empire, um, did do it because of the sins of, that, that were there, but they weren't in their fullness. And of course, we see as we go through this, we start struggling with, well, he didn't really do that, and he didn't really do that, and he didn't really do that. He didn't have that knowledge. And so we say, well... I mean, he kind of fits it chronologically. We know historically what he did. But the language used here is describing someone much worse than him who had access to some things that he didn't have. And we know that. I mean, the guy, when he came to Jerusalem, he wasn't at the height of power. He had just gotten his tail kicked out of Egypt and was mad and came and took it out on the Jews. So he wasn't really in this position described here as though he was ready to take on anyone. And so we're, we are talking about this king arising. And again, we have this description. And you go right down through these two and a half verses. And this is a description of the man of sin we're supposed to be looking for. 
And uh, I'm not going to go into these specifically because I want to read all the passages first and then I'm going to probably run out of time. Sorry. Okay, let's go on to Daniel. That's Daniel chapter 8. Let's go to Daniel chapter 9. This is very brief. Only one little phrase, but I want to include it because it does talk about him. Let's pick up in verse 26. This is a 70 weeks prophecy um, giving a chronology of when everything is going to happen. And so they knew 62 weeks, verse 26 is after 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself, referring to the, to the death of Christ. So we know when that happens from the time of Daniel's vision uh, or from the time of the uh, building of the temple. And so we have it all figured out from the command to restore and build Jerusalem till Messiah um, is, is these number of weeks. But then it says... Um, He'll be cut off, and the people, verse 26, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And so there's a prince to come. There is an individual who is very much future, but the people from which he will be derived are going to be participating in the sacking of Jerusalem. They're going to destroy the city and the sanctuary, um, and the end of it will be with a flood. And then we have another... Big parenthesis, till the end, uh, war desolations are determined. Verse 27, then he, this is that prince, somewhere down the, after all these wars and desolations until the end, okay? When we get to the end, now he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Who is the he? It's the prince, the man of sin, the son of perdition. This last one who's going to take on the Prince of Princes, Jesus Christ. He is going to establish a treaty or covenant. In the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. There it is again. He is opposed to religion. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So he's a desolator. Just as we've seen other places, uh, we saw in the other other picture of him that he is going to bring many in their prosperity to ruin. Okay? We got one other passage, chapter 11. Chapter 11, we have an extensive, very specific, detailed description of uh, history of the uh, Greek Empire. Um, we have, we can map this out on my Bible. I have all the king's names and all the dates of when these things happened until I get to around 29 to 34 or so. Then suddenly we start having problems because nothing from there on is identifiable with historical events. And so we look at it and say, well, what? is going on in verse 35. It says, And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, make them white. And then we have this phrase, until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. And I believe that is a big chronological parenthesis. Like we saw again in the other passages, there's this stuff going on. And for an indeterminate length of time, there's this kind of stuff going on. And now we jump to something that is still future. And we're supposed to look for this king. Then the king, this king, whoever he is, shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. Does it sound familiar now? Sound familiar, isn't it? This is now the third, fourth time. Shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, the one true god shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. And right there we know exactly what we're talking about. Now we're talking about the wrath of God being poured out, that this man will be there when this is occurring. For what has been determined shall be done. This is the language typical also of Habakkuk chapter 2, that it's well in the future, but it is sure, because just as sure as all the things in the, in, earlier in the chapter have come true, this will come true. It will happen. So here's our description further on. Verse 37. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women. So he's going to abandon 
his religious roots of either his family or his nation or both. And of course, we have no problems with that because we already know he's an irreligious one. He wants to draw people away from following after any kind of religious practice other than exalting him. And so he draws them out. He's going to speak blasphemies against the God of gods, the one true God. Um, he is not speaking blasphemies against every God, though. He is lifting himself up among the lesser, the false gods. I want you to notice that in that verse um, there. In verse 36, he exalts and magnifies himself above every god, little g. So it's okay to believe in little g's as long as you put me at the top of the little g's. As long as you put me up there with all those gods, um, that's okay. But if you want to talk about the God of gods, the one true and living God, he's going to blaspheme that God. He's going to speak against him. And even taking credit for things that that God's done. He's going to prosper, and that's another thing. He's going to prosper. And this is not a word of just, uh, you know, he does okay. It is the idea that everything he lays his hands to, he gets his way. And it's this meteoric rise to power and this ability to get whatever he wants, no matter the odds against him, um, that he's just going to do whatever he wants. And that's how verse 36 starts off. He's going to do according to his will. Whatever he wants to do, he's going to do. And even if it's ridiculous things, he's going to prosper at it. Against all odds. People are going to say, how does he keep doing that? Well, he's going to prosper. He's going to do whatever he wants to do. This is one of the signs is that he wants to do these things and he's going to prosper and it's going to happen as he wants. He's going to get his way time and time again, even though it seems that it's just there's no way. He's not going to regard the God of his fathers. That is, that he's going to turn his back on them. And, and another thing he's not going to regard, that is, he's going to turn his back on the desire of women. And this has been used variously. Um, first of all, I want you to notice that he, he's, this idea of not regarding the God of his fathers and not regarding the desire of women uh, means that he's going to come to a place where he is going to turn his back on it. This is literally the idea here. That he is going to, here he, he has been trained or followed it, and he's going to disregard it. He's well aware of it, even participate in it, but then he's going to disregard it. He's going to turn away from the God of his fathers, and he's also going to turn away from the desire of women. That is, that the sin that specifically we ought to be looking for in his life is homosexuality. That he is not interested in really the desire of women. He is. Uh, turned away from it. Uh, nor does he regard any God. He's not turning to any uh, deity per se as we would know it. He exalts himself above them all. So anything in the past, he is rejecting and establishing himself. And specifically with regard to the God of his fathers, he is going to reject. As well as the desire of women. He's not going to have any desire after them. Um, he's not going to uh, seek that out. Uh, he is going to have homosexuality among his sin traits. In their place, and uh, in the place of the God of his fathers, in the place of women, in the place of these little deities, he will give honor to some God. Um, and you might say, well, wait a minute. He just... Ruled out all gods. This is kind of an unusual statement and it has created a lot of discussion. In place he shall honor a god of fortresses and a god which his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. And thus, in the name of this god of fortresses, unknown by his forefathers, that he has given over gold and silver to, um, thus, he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god, which he shall acknowledge and advance his glory. He shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. 
So we have this description of his capacity to take over the wealth and honor this false ideal, this God of fortresses. And we really have a difficult time. Again, we're not looking at a God per se uh, in a formal religious setting. So we're not trying to plug this into, well, is this Allah? Is this Buddha? Is this, uh, you know, Jehovah's Witness? Is this? No, we're not trying to plug it into any false religious system that we know of today. It, it's, it's something very foreign, and it's even foreign to our concept, really, of, of, of religious activity. And yet he gives himself entirely to it and honors it, and, and apparently it has some strong connections to the monetary system of the world, to gold, silver, to the whole uh, economic powerhouse. By it, he is able to act against the strongest forces out there, fortresses, with this foreign god that has been uh, endowed with gold and silver, precious stones, and pleasant things. And whether this is a consumeristic mentality, I, I tend towards that because of Habakkuk chapter 2, this whole idea that we are going to draw you into this economic view where what you are really worshiping is the acquisition of stuff. What you're really worshiping um, is uh, wealth. Um, and that is becomes our God. Uh, and that this is a, a kind of worship that, is, that isn't just never been. I mean, men have always desired after wealth. Um, but it is going to be the reigning way by which he's going to destroy um, everything else out there. And by the strongest fortresses, we tend to think uh, politically in this area, um, we tend to think politically of uh, fortresses like uh, castles or, or national defenses. These are take down countries. Um, but the, really the word here is, is a little bit different. And again, the whole idea of the God of fortresses is these principles. That here he's going to take this different model, this, this unique kind of entity, and is going to destroy a lot of other entities that, that have been long established. And I believe the destruction of fortresses here is not just necessarily describing um, other political powers. It certainly can be, and, and that would be an appropriate application, but it's not limited to that. I would contend that it is by this very means that he brings down other religions, that he brings down um, the world into this ideology that he's going to be carrying. Um, people are going to abandon all other principles to chase after that big carrot out there that he's going to put. Here's this big carrot. You can have it all. And Habakkuk is very deliberate in describing that kind of thing uh, as well as Revelation. So we have a man of sin. Uh, he's specifically called the lawless one. We have a man who is going to abandon religion as we know it. He's going to advance an ideology that's going to be tied in with gold and silver, precious stones and pleasant things. This uh, building up of of wealth and the good life. And by it, he's going to tear down other ideologies. Not just nations and fortresses, but all of these other things. He's going to advance its glory. He shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. And this whole idea is that while everyone buys into that ideology, the fact is the ideology is going to suck the economic life out of them. So he gives this big offer, and they're going to bite into that apple, so to speak, and they're going to buy into that system and that ideology, and then after they have given themselves over to it, they find out that they are the chumps. They are the ones from whom everything is going to be derived. They're just going to be sucked out in terms of being divided for gain, 
They are going to be the ones that essentially are conquered and are going to be ruled over. And again, this is not necessarily an ideology that he creates. Notice that. He honors it. Someone else created it. But he is going to give honor to it and he is going to give it its fullest power globally. So these are our descriptions. We know that he is going to do some of these things. So um, some of these things are still future. We know the abomination of desolating the temple is obviously future. We know that the signing of the treaty hasn't happened yet, so that's still future. So those two we can take off of our list right now to say, okay, what fits this category? Who fits these categories? Who is it that, that can be described in these ways? And we're going to start investigating that more next week. And we're going to try to, and I'll have a handout with them all listed off for you um, that we've derived out of here. Where's their lawless one? Where's their one who has turned away from religion? Where is their one who is accepting this role in society, not just in a single community, but in globally, that I'm going to save you, I'm going to deliver you? Who is the one that's going to blaspheme the God of gods, oppose Jesus Christ himself? And who is this one? His sin is rampant. He, and, and this whole idea of lawlessness, we're going to investigate a little bit more next week. But this is what we're looking for. And again, we are not to just sit back and take all this scripture and say, no one knows. That attitude is wrong. It's telling something to God that... Um, you gave us all this information. You give us this statement that the man of sin will be revealed, um, but we're not going to engage it. Hands off. Because nobody knows. And that is so frustrating to me. I can't even imagine how frustrating it is to God who by His grace has given us this data for us to process through and to examine so that we will be even better prepared at His coming for what is going to transpire. So that we will be steadfast in our faith and unmovable. And I believe the weakest part of our Christian faith today, where we are the most susceptible right now, is our unwillingness to stand up and declare God's statements as relevant to what's going on today in our world. And we're getting plastered on every side because we are coming to God's Word with a wishy-washy attitude. Nobody really knows. It's anybody's guess what that means. And that's how I find too many people coming to prophecy today with that attitude. Yes, I agree. Foolish men in the past and women um, have foolishly declared this is that when they shouldn't have and they have done so in opposition to God's word by saying the Lord's coming is going to be at thus and thus time. The Bible tells specifically you can't know the day or the hour. But what it also tells you specifically is the man of sin will be revealed. Let's not toss out one with the other. Don't confuse these. We're not a, here to try to guess the day and the hour. That's not what this study is about. But we do know that the day is at hand and one of the ways that we can tell that is to be able to identify the man of sin. And if he's not around, then we go to Thessalonians and we say, what? It's not time yet. It's not time yet. We can identify the falling away, and hopefully you're with me on that. <laughs> the church isn't getting better and better and stronger and stronger. Are we ready to identify a man of sin? Are we really to engage ourselves in actively pursuing this research of who could this man be? And narrowing the field and narrowing the field. Um, and I think every generation that wants the Lord's return has got to be engaged in that process. Because others have failed, because they were too early in the process, doesn't mean we should just ignore it. That's foolishness. This is one of the signs that are specifically mentioned 
here in Thessalonians to the believers saying, listen, look for this guy. When he's revealed, you know Christ's coming is upon us. And because he wasn't revealed in their day, the Thessalonians were supposed to be relaxed. Relax. It's not here yet. Even John in 1 John says, um, you know that there's going to come an Antichrist. Well, that's still a long ways off, but I want you to know something. There's a lot of little Antichrist all over the place today. Okay? And so for 2,000 years, we've been dealing with little Antichrist. The question is that, Paul, that John and Paul intimate is that you should be able to identify the big A Antichrist, the capital M man of sin. You should be able to, to finger him. I've given you this data. Apply it. Methodically, look around. And especially when we see so many other prophecies already accomplished. You see so many other signs finished, we should be ready to just jump on this. Instead, I find the church, hmm, oh, no one really knows. Oh, we don't want to, that's too dangerous. That's too, you know, I, I don't think we should be doing that. Um, nonsense. We're willing to jump on board when some radio guy says the Lord's going to come on such and such a day. And then when it doesn't happen, we're all, oh, well, you know, that's on. And now we've become so timid that we're not willing to look at what the Bible tells us to look at. And so we are called to this. And so, no, I'm not going to go the way of Mrs. White and the Seventh-day Adventists. I'm not going to go the way of the Jehovah's Witnesses and their John class, and we're not going to go the way of Harold Camping. All of them were in error because they did exactly what the Bible said not to do. But for that reason, we shouldn't stop doing what the Bible tells us to do. And that is, look at the signs that Jesus really said, that the Bible really commands us to look at, and identify them, and show them for what they are. I'm not going to tell you a day and hour. That's not our job. But our job is to be a looking for the apostasy of falling away and the man of sin. We have been given that specific directive that if those two things aren't around, we shouldn't be concerned that we missed the day of the Lord, the rapture. But if those two things are here and are identifiable, then the rapture is upon us.